Namaste and good evening to all of you. We are continuing with the discourses on the <coughs> fundamental spiritual and yogic teachings given by Krishna in the essential text of Indian spirituality known as the Bhagavad Gita. We are in the middle or actually in the end of the very fourth chapter of this text, which is called the Yoga of Knowledge. Here Krishna has given an incredible amount of knowledge about what we call in English sacrifice, yagya. By this understanding actually the essential process in spiritual practice, which either is this done externally, formally, ritually, as in various religions, or internally in the spiritual practice by people who are on an esoteric path. And in the strophe number 34 of this chapter, Krishna is extolling this knowledge. He says that everything culminates in the spiritual knowledge. We'll see in a second because he resumes again what knowledge is it that he is talking about. And he concluded by saying that know this through homage, repeated inquiry and service, the man of knowledge who have experienced reality will teach you this knowledge. This being one of the bases of the process of guru and disciple, that a disciple in traditional India was giving homage, repeated inquiry and service and because of this so-called good behavior, the guru was showering the knowledge which had the function of salvation. And now there start a few shlokas, the final shlokas of this chapter, in which Krishna is making a true ode to knowledge, to the spiritual knowledge. That's why tonight we start with a shloka, with a strophe number 35, which reads as follows. Knowing this, O Arjuna, you will, not, will no more fall into such delusion. For through this, you will see all beings in yourself and also in me. This is again a very grand statement. Let us start seeing what Krishna speaks about. He says, knowing this, what this, what he just mentioned about, about sacrifice, about spiritual action, about all the forms of sacrifice, and that all the forms of sacrifice are forms of karma yoga, and all the things which I already described into our discourses here. And he says, knowing this, thus knowing the spiritual truth, you shall not, again, O Arjuna, become deluded like this. Like what? Maybe you don't know, or maybe you forgot, you, never, you knew and you forgot. This dialogue of Bhagavad Gita is a dialogue on a battlefield between Arjuna, who is a karma yogi warrior, and Krishna, who plays a very humble role apparently, but actually who is a very, very important character spiritually. He is the guru. He is the one who is the spiritual authority 
moreover in india he is the avatar he is the divine incarnation for that cycle for that time and for that place and therefore krishna says you will you will no more fall into such delusion what's the delusion the delusion is that arjuna is overwhelmed by human feelings and he actually is in front of a tusk which is bigger than him in a certain way you can compare it with people who became heroes during let's say wars like you can think about some of the people who behaved heroically during the let's say second world war and who sometimes had to do things which were not easy to do and those people had to choose a greater good if i do this five people will die if i do this 500000 people will die it's not easy to make such a choice nobody would have any ease in making such a choice and yet some people did and arjuna is a little bit into a similar predicament and his thing is that he's thinking very small as opposed to the famous expression which says think big arjuna is momentarily or was momentarily incapable of thinking big arjuna was thinking about that's my cousin this is not honorable at all i can't do this what will people say about that and he is about to shirk his spiritual duty arjuna was born arjuna was trained the whole life to be a perfect divine instrument and exactly when he is about to do his divine thing arjuna flops he becomes weak need and he is about to give in he is about to give up and krishna fortunately is there and is telling him do you did you forget who you are did you forget what your duty is it is exactly like somebody has been trained and is being hired to be a policeman and when a common criminal strikes the man who is the policeman suddenly gets afraid and he doesn't want to chase the criminal then why are you a policeman why did you hire to do this job what the heck are you doing here then why do we pay you then why did you train so many years to become this it's the same story analogously spoken and that's why arjuna the point is arjuna is about to shirk his duty and krishna is there to empower him to wake him up and krishna is telling to him remember who you are don't mock your condition you are a hero therefore in this situation stand up and behave like a hero what are you doing and therefore he says knowing this if you would have the spiritual knowledge if you would have a global vision you will not be deluded like this what krishna tells to arjuna applies to every human being krishna says if you you not only arjuna if you who are here would have the spiritual knowledge you would not be deluded by small trifling things in the daily life 
we constantly, people constantly get deluded. Somebody takes you a piece of bread from your bag and you want to kill them. Something happens and you want to commit suicide. I don't know what and you want to do something stupid. But if you would know what Jesus knew or what Krishna knew or some of the great spirits knew, you would react in a different way. The people of knowledge, the real spiritually awakened men and women who are the great luminaries, the great spirits of this planet, they acted in a different way because they knew something which the normal person doesn't know. And what those people knew is not a theoretical knowledge. It's not something which you read in a book. It's an experimental knowledge. It's an existential knowledge that you understand something, you see something, you realize something, and then automatically you cannot see the world in the same ignorant way in which you did before. And that's why before he said that if you address a guru and if you serve that guru, if you behave properly, those people who have knowledge, they will pass this knowledge on to you. Which is not like the central intelligence agency that they pass intelligence to you, that they pass information. They, it's an existential thing. They make you transform and when you transform, you realize things which for the normal ignorant people are not there. How are you going to teach to a person something about forgiveness? Sometimes forgiveness seems to be unacceptable. And yet one person like Jesus says, you should forgive 70 times 7, which means almost endlessly, practically forever. No, it means Jesus knows something which people who preach revenge don't know. Because in a situation of conflict, you have two answers. One of them is the old Jewish law, which says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which comes from Manipura Chakra. And the other one is the law of Jesus, which comes from Anahata Chakra, and which says if somebody slaps you on one cheek, give him the other one as well. And if one asks you for your shirt, give him your coat as well. And if one asks you to accompany him for a hundred yards, accompany him for a thousand. This is a different value. Like when Jesus says this, he shows that he sees, he understands, he feels, he realizes something which the normal person does not. And thus, there is a knowledge and he says, knowing this, having this higher level of consciousness, says Krishna, you shall not, O Arjuna, become deluded like this. Basically, he says, right now, you are in a low level of consciousness. And what I am doing here with you, says Krishna, is I am giving you a quick, a crash transmission of knowledge. I am trying to rise your level of consciousness so that you can act from the heart or higher and you can act like karma yoga, like sacrifice, 
And in that way, you can do whatever you have to do. As a hero, you can live up to your condition for which you have been groomed, educated, grown up to be such a hero because the humanity needs you right now at your best. So he says once more, Knowing this, O Arjuna, you will no longer, no more fall into such delusion. For through this, through this knowledge which, you, which I am about to give, which is coming through this text of Bhagavad Gita, and which the sages, the men and women of wisdom know anyway, through this you will see all beings in yourself and also in me. This is a beautiful statement because it creates a triangle. First, let's take the first part of it. You will see all the beings in yourself. Try to realize all the beings. There are six, seven billion people in this world today. Not to mention all what the Buddhists call all the sentient beings such as the animals and even the plants. It's very difficult to count how many billions or trillions of sentient beings exist only on this earth. But let's think only about the human beings, which are supposed to be the flowering of evolution, the acme of evolution until today. Until today, we do not have knowledge of any species which is more evolved, which goes into Buddhahood and enlightenment like the human beings. And Krishna says, through this knowledge, you will see all the beings, such as all the six billion human beings, in yourself. How can you see billions of human beings, like you are here in front of me, and at the same time, I can see that you are in myself. But then myself sounds like it's bigger than yourself. Like I have a self, whatever that self is, an Atman, a soul, which is so big that all your souls are in my soul. Like mine is inclusive. That's a very strange statement. Because the soul, through its very nature is infinite, is of the nature of perfection. And therefore, infinite can contain infinite without being bigger or smaller. The mathematics of the infinite says that when you compare two groups of numbers or of items, which are both of them infinite, which one of them is bigger? You cannot put the sign, this infinite is bigger than this infinite. It doesn't really make sense. And because of this, in the world of the mathematics of the infinite, such a rational understanding is not possible. People always think with a mind in rational, intellectual ways. If I can see all the seven billion in this world people being in myself, it means I have some sort of over-self, which is all-inclusive. While that is true, metaphorically, as a matter of principle, it is not true quantitatively in any way. 
the spirit is the spirit is the spirit. Atma is Atma is Atma. There is nothing else to understand about it. It cannot be defined or understood logically and you cannot think the Supreme Self. The Supreme Self cannot be embraced by anyone's thought because it is infinite. It is absolute in nature. And because of this, remember that that is actually possible. It is possible at the level of the spirit to experience omniscience. The brain can never express omniscience because the brain is an ensemble of billions of neurons, the billions of neural cells, and even though the brain is powerful, amazing, complex, and even today we don't understand most of what's happening in this brain, nevertheless the brain cannot contain an infinite knowledge. You cannot, the sensory organs, the pathways, everything which you have, they can trickle knowledge at a certain rate. Maybe if we take a special drug or something, we can have a hundred times more knowledge than in the daily life. But a hundred times more knowledge, it's still not infinite. It's just a hundred times more than the rate in the daily life. That's still a limited speed. And that is why the whole point being, you can experience infinite things, but not with the body, not with the brain. That's why the body and the brain only can channel, relay down here a bit of what is experienced at a spiritual level. A drop out of an ocean. In the world of the spirit, you have the ocean, but you cannot experience, you cannot express that. All the great spiritualists in this world, they have said what I am showing to you. What I am telling to you, what I know, is only an infinitesimal thing compared to what I know at the other end. At the other end of the knowledge process where I am connected to the infinite, the knowledge is infinite. But a human body, even if you live on a very advanced planet from another galaxy where people are super intelligent and super developed, as long as you have a body with a brain or whatever it is which is limited in size, something which is limited in size can only channel, produce, filter a limited amount of knowledge. Even if that is millions of times more than human beings have, it's still limited. The only unlimited thing can be beyond the body, beyond the matter. And that is why the human spiritual being reaches in a sort of duality. There is a sort of dilemma. There is a double vision. I know that all the beings are in me. And if all the beings of this planet are in myself, then it somehow feels like I am God. Which is God's truth, ultimately. And it is not only Jesus who said, I and my father are one and the same. But it is Mansur, the Sufi mystic, who said, I am Allah. It is Shankaracharya, Adi Shankaracharya, who said, I am Brahman. 
It is Abhinavagupta who said, Shivoham, I am Shiva, and the list could continue almost endlessly. If not endlessly, then at least a lot. And that's why this experience in which I am the universe, I contain all the beings, it feels like almost like you are in me, you are my children, you are almost like my creation. I can understand everything. This is an expression of the state of enlightenment and of the state of full divinization of the human being. So Krishna says, then you can see all the beings in yourself. In your higher self, you can see every human being on this earth. Because every human being on this earth and all the sentient beings in this universe, but let's focus on something which your mind can at least semi-conceive of. Every human being on this earth is created by Atman. Every human being on this earth is a production, so to speak, of the Supreme Self. It's an emanation of the Supreme Self. And the Supreme Self is one and the same. If I am Atman, you are Atman as well. And therefore, if I look at myself, I see all the human beings in myself because they are nothing else but reflections, shining of myself. So, and that's why Lao Tzu says, if you know other people, you are strong. But when you know yourself, then you are really strong. The real strength is not the strength of the muscle or the strength of holding information about other people, quantitative information, again, a la CIA or something. The real strength is the strength of Jesus. It is the strength expressed by the Greek dictum, which says, know thyself and you shall know the universe. Because the universe is emanated by the self, which is yourself as well. And because of this, we are children of the same infinite. This doctrine which Krishna is teaching here is unacceptable by the mind and it is not accepted in the dualistic theologies. In all the forms of dualistic spirituality, like most popular religions are, to say, I am God, is considered to be a blasphemy. And yet Jesus said it, and he was not a blasphemer, but people considered him a blasphemer, nevertheless. Mansur said it, and he was considered a blasphemer. Shankaracharya said it, and because he was in India, where the Vedantic ideas have been preached, he was contested, but he got away with it somehow. He also died pretty young, so he didn't have the time to take all the clobbering that he could have taken. It was said by Abhinavagupta, but Abhinavagupta was the representative of the most esoteric and elite form of tantric teaching of whole of India and perhaps of Asia. And he got away with it in Kashmir, where people were immersed into the non-dualistic study of Kashmirian Shaivism. And that's why I say, 
It's very difficult to understand it with the mind. No, not very difficult. Impossible. If you try to understand this with the mind, you will reach to only wrong conclusions. There is only a perfume of it which speaks somehow without words to your higher self. You know somewhere that there is oneness. You know that there cannot be truth which is higher than oneness. You know that the ultimate reality is oneness. And oneness means I am that and that I am and you are that and thus there is a community. Here Krishna says, you will see all the beings in yourself. This still is lacking one little point. I have a self which is called Atman and which is a mysterious spirit, some sort of transcendent spiritual reality and I am emanated by that. And so is she and so is he. Fine. So we are all produced. This is missing one aspect. That aspect is hated in some non-religious environments. That aspect is that if I am that and you are that, then that is a sort of a universal, omnipresent, almighty, omniscient, infinite, eternal, perfect, absolute presence. That presence is called in the Western philosophical thinking, God. It is called in Vedanta, Brahman. It is called in Buddhism, the Buddha nature or the void. It is called in Greek philosophy, the absolute. It is called in the Judeo-Christian Islamic traditions, either Jehovah or God the Father or Allah. There are different names given to a reality which surpasses the mind and the mind does not have any hope or perspective of understanding it logically or rationally. And that is why Krishna wisely, he doesn't want to leave it to the level of the self. Oh, this is about human beings. Every human being is a God. Every human being is a product of Atman. I am Atman. You are Atman. Lovely. We are all Atman. That can lead, and it did lead in some spiritual errors in the history of this planet, into a sort of error. It's incomplete spirituality. It's like the cherry is not put on top of the cake. You are making a wonderful cream cake, whipped cream. It's beautiful, decorated, prepared for the birthday. And there is one little thing. You have to put that cherry on top of the cake. So there is a, it looks finite. Without the cherry on top of the cake, the cake seems to be missing something. That something is the idea of a universal consciousness which embraces all and that's why it does not belong to me. If I reduce it to me and you, then it's about me and you, but there is no God. But of course, we cannot let God out, but we pretend for a second. We don't want to think about that. That is what philosophically or theologically in the Judeo-Christian and Islamic tradition is called Luciferianism. Luciferianism is... 
to think that man does not need God and can do anything by itself. It's a wrong philosophical idea. And that's why Krishna, who is very aware of the spiritual truth, when it is said, expressed clearly, Krishna says, then knowing through this knowledge, through this divine knowledge, you will see all the beings in yourself and also in me. And here Krishna, when he speaks, he pulls the veil. Because according to the Hindu theological thinking, Krishna is the avatara, the eighth avatara of Vishnu. And as such, he is not a person involved into personal soul evolution and growth on the planet like people are. Even Buddha says, I have been a soul who evolved for 10,000 lifetimes and then I reached nirvana. Krishna never said, I am a soul who became enlightened and now I am a realized soul. Never. Krishna says, and the idea in Indian mysticism is, that Krishna was God before he came on earth and he incarnated on earth with a historical mission. And therefore, when Krishna says me, he can very well say God. For the Hindus, Krishna is like Jesus. He is God speaking. is just another incarnation of God in a body. I'm not going now to go into the details because metaphysically there would be some differences because Krishna is coming, is being presented as an avatar of Vishnu, the preserving aspect of God, while Jesus presents himself as an emanation, as a presence on earth of the divine consciousness itself in its fullness. And that's why there is a different scope. It is not time tonight in this discourse to discuss those. Those are things which I discuss in the metaphysical workshops. When you'll catch me ever during a metaphysical workshop, there you can have more explanations about the picture of the universe, the way it is uh, as expressed by the great spirits, by the most sense-making type of spirituality. So, he says, no, through this, you will see all the beings in yourself and in me and in God. And this thus we have a very beautiful triangle. It's me, yourself, myself. It's all the sentient beings and it's God. I can see all the sentient beings in myself. But I can also see all the sentient beings in God. Which means I am God. And it also means that I am in God. And it also means that God is in me. Which is truly the paradox. As Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is in every man's heart. If the kingdom of heaven is in my heart, then is God present in his own kingdom? Then it means God is in the heart. But then means God is in me. But also I know that I am in God because God is supposed to be an infinite ocean of consciousness. And thus, I have these paradoxes which surpass logics and reason, which say I am in God, God is in me, and I am 
am God and all the beings are in me, all the beings are in God, Shiva, Brahman, the absolute as you want to call it. And therefore we have a beautiful triangle here. Everything confirms everything. Each one of these statements is bouncing into the next. I am that, but you are that, so I am you. It's all making sense at a divine level, although, of course, rationally, you can say it makes no sense in the daily life. Indeed, in the daily life, for the mind, it does not make sense, except for those who have seen this truth, and although they cannot explain it fully with the mind, it can never really be put on paper, and yet you know somehow intuitively you know that it is there it is a sort of a leap of faith i believe that it is so because intuitively in my heart i know that it is so and i can never demonstrate it and i know that i can never demonstrate it because my mind can never encompass that and therefore i am doomed to just express it but that's all there is to it. There can never be a scientific demonstration about God. Because the scientific apparatus uses reason. And if God would be demonstrable by reason, God would not be God. The cosmic consciousness would not be transcendent, infinite, perfect, and all that which I said, if it would be demonstrable by any machinery or mathematics, or reasoning system. So, it's clear, knowing this, you will not have such delusion, for through this, you will see all beings in yourself, and also in me. That's the reward. That's the description of the state of samadhi. Sometimes in yoga, if we describe too technically the state of samadhi, we say, if you do asanas, then you go to pranayama. If you go pranayama, then you go to pratyahara, then to concentration, then to meditation. And those of you who will make it to the top of the mountain will experience different degrees of the state of samadhi. And somebody will say, is it worth it? Like, yeah, sure, Buddha wanted to achieve this nirvana, and so did Swami Shivananda, and so did, sure, lots of saints and lots of mystics, but is it worth it? Like, tempt me. It's exactly like Neo in the famous cult movie, The Matrix. He wants to know what The Matrix is, but Morpheus tells him, unfortunately, nobody can tell you what The Matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. So it's the red pill or the green pill. You have to see, you have to do it yourself. And he tells him, I can't even guarantee it's going to be pleasant. But it's going to be the truth. You are going to see things. In his illusion, he needs to be tempted. Why is Neo tempted to find what the matrix is? The other people in Kansas City, they eat their hot dogs. And they couldn't care less about what the matrix is. Why do you want to find out what the matrix is? At home you have cousins and friends and relatives who don't give a shit on what you are doing. They think that you being interested in spirituality is almost a mental disease. 
You are almost weirdos. Like, why do you care about this when you could simply raise children, have a suburban house, a bourgeois life, a couple of dogs and a suburban car and something. You could pursue a career. You could travel, have package tours and stuff like this. Like, why would you bother... Like, I want to know God. I want to reach nirvana. I want to know who I am. I want to reach the infinite. That almost sounds like a pathological thing. You cannot be happy with the things of the daily life. And you are looking for something which is infinitely bombastic and big and grand and so on. What's this? And that's why people cannot understand that. And that's why we say... What does, why does Neo want to see what, what the matrix is? What moves him? That is exactly the paradox. So you want to see all the beings in the self and all in God, but this is a rare thing. This aspiration towards spirituality, it is a rare thing. And that's what it is promised. As I said before, we describe the state of samadhi. And if somebody is a bit narrow-minded and dull and doesn't have a good spiritual karma, so somehow that person is blind spiritually, that person, two people come to Agama, they listen to the beautiful illuminating lectures held by Agama teachers about essential issues in your life, and one clicks and says, I have to come back, or I have to stay here more. This is answering to something very important for me. And another one says, it's not really that important. Yeah, sure, these are very good speakers. And it's, but like the soul is not touched. And one of them says, I heard about enlightenment and samadhi, and my whole being vibrates with it. I want it. I don't know why, but I want it. And another one says, for, the God, for God's sake, I have attended the same lecture with you. I sat just beside you. And I got something completely different out of it than you. And therefore, the point is that very often it's very difficult to explain what the state of enlightenment is. Some people say it's eternal happiness. Some people say it's eternal life. Those people who say it's eternal happiness, they address to the people who are unhappy. Every unhappy person looks for eternal happiness. But those who say it's eternal life, they apply to the people who are afraid of death. You are afraid of death? There is a way of never dying. Immortality. It's just a language of tickling the human beings, of tempting the human beings... Come, the matrix is going to give you eternal life. The matrix is going to give you happiness. The matrix is going to give you knowledge. The matrix is going to give you almightiness. The ma By this, I'm just luring the person towards enlightenment. All the systems of spirituality rely on this. We can't tell you exactly how the matrix is and therefore we can only tantalize you. We can only tease you. We can only tempt you. Come to the top of the mountain. It's so wonderful. Why is it so wonderful, right? 
We can't explain. Ramakrishna got to the top of the mountain and he died agonizingly with cancer in his throat. Okay, this gives a different perspective about what the top of that mountain is. Jesus was on the top of the mountain and he died nailed on a cross and screaming, My God, my God, why have you left me? Therefore, what is the top of the mountain? Because if somebody says it's eternal happiness, when you look at Ramakrishna, when you look at Jesus, and when you look at 20 others, you don't really see eternal happiness always. Not in the way in which the Svadistanistic mind of people imagines it anyway. And therefore, here is what Krishna has to say. Krishna has to give his version of the things. Like, why would you be interested to see what the matrix is? Why should you do meditation? Why should you do yoga? Because then you can see all the beings in yourself and in God. Some people will say, I prefer the bliss angle to it. Good. Krishna is then not talking to you. He's talking. Other people feel inspired by this. Like that's a description because what we always lack is what's at stake. People say, I would do six years of meditation and yoga, eight hours per day minimum. But tell me what will I get from it? Tempt me. Make me interested in it. And then I will decide. There are people who want to become successful politicians. There are people who want to become PhDs and academics. There are people who want to become billionaires. Everybody wants to become something thinking of the advantages of it, looking forward at what it is. And for the people who want to reach nirvana, there is also, there are always various descriptions trying to tempt you. It's like selling a little bit the state of samadhi. You know if you get to the state of samadhi, you will never lose the continuity of the consciousness and you will reach a form of immortality, of spiritual immortality, even if your body decays and dies one day, which it usually does, you will remain perfectly aware in your higher consciousness and when you die, you shall die no more. You should remember a conscious spirit in God, with God forever. Some people buy this. Some people say, I'll have a bit of that, please. Yeah, that interests me. And therefore, there are different angles. That is why it is very important in spirituality to know why do we do spirituality. Here is an angle. Krishna says, this spiritual thing, this knowledge will make you see all the beings in the Supreme Self and in God, which hides in it this triangular logic. If everything is in God and everything... Every thing is in yourself, then yourself is God, and thus we have a triangular self locking confirmation. <clears throat> and then Krishna continues Even if you were the most sinful of all sinners, you would cross over all evil by the raft of knowledge alone. That's one of the fears. Even Jesus answered to this fear. Jesus comes and says, 
Even if you are the sinner of all the sinners, if you repent, God can forgive you in one second. The sins of a hundred eons can disappear in a fraction of a second if the grace of God is applied because the divine is almighty and nothing which can seem big to you or to the rest of the humanity is necessarily difficult or impossible for the divine consciousness which is infinite and thus has no limitation of any kind. And therefore, this statement is universal and you find it in all the traditions. Here is how it is expressed by Krishna. Even if you are the most sinful of all sinners, yet you shall verily cross all sins by the raft of knowledge alone. That's an ode to knowledge. What do you need? You need knowledge. It's exactly the same which Buddha said. Buddha said, the human pain or suffering is caused by ignorance. And what's the opposite of ignorance? Knowledge. But not knowledge from the books. Knowledge from your realization. And therefore, Buddha says, if you have knowledge, you have destroyed the suffering. Any one of you wants to stay out of pain, and we're not talking about physical pain, we're talking about suffering as the category, as the philosophical category of the human suffering, then Buddha says, cultivate knowledge. Knowledge eliminates suffering. And then you can say, but wait a second, does it mean then why did Ramakrishna have a cancer? Why did it mean that you as a yogi cannot fall down and hurt yourself, you know, strike your big toe into some piece of wood or a stone and then have pain for a few days or something? Isn't that pain? Yes, it is. But that would, to, to apply this statement there, then you would need to apply it to the level of perfect knowledge. If you would have a perfect knowledge then you wouldn't even strike your big toe on a rock because you'd be omniscient and you'd be able to sail through this world just like that. There would be zero pain, no physical. And people say, and what about when you die? We heard that some people, when they die, they go short of breath. <laughs> and is that still a pain? It's a discomfort. Like very few people just die serenely with a smile on their lips. There is usually a struggle to let go of your physical body. What have you got to say about that? If you would have the perfect knowledge, you'd simply sit down and go out through the top of your head. And that would be it. Like even death could be like... The theory, if you want to take it theoretically and idealistically and perfectionistically, the statement still holds. If you would have... But people say, but what about if you get hit by a tornado, by a hurricane? If you are a person of full knowledge, you'll move out of the geographical area before the tornado comes. Like if you would have full knowledge in all its aspects, because it doesn't mean only, again, informational knowledge, indeed it would be possible. And then you are going to say, but Swami, then why did Ramakrishna have a cancer? Why did the spiritual people still accept a certain degree of pain? 
they must have had something in that knowledge which made them consider that that was worthwhile, that that was important for them to do it that way. They were looking at it in terms of compassion, of loving kindness, of love your neighbor as you love yourself, and a few other such enormous values. And because of this, they crossed some limits. They were not applying that knowledge about which Krishna speaks and about which Buddha speaks. They were not applying it 100% and perfectionistically. Because there is a wisdom to it. First of all, in this world, nothing is perfect. In the world of matter, nothing is infinite. In space, in nothing is eternal in time. And there are always damaging and limiting factors, such as where everything gets worn out. Even the pyramids of Egypt are slowly, slowly turning into sand, dust and rubble. Nothing goes forever. In the physical world, there is always, any one of you has studied physics, especially mechanics. In mechanics, there is always the hypothesis, the idea, the mental experiment, what would be if objects could move through this world, like vehicles, different objects, if they could move without friction, like zero friction, things gliding 100%. But that, of course, does not exist. It's just a utopian example, which makes that if you'd have a piece of iron on the ice, like on a skating ring, you could just push that piece of ice and it would go with a constant speed forever, for a million kilometers, because there is no friction and it would never slow down. In practice, there does not exist any such thing on the face of this earth. It's only hypothetically in physics, like a mental experiment. And that simply says we live in a world where there is friction, where there is limitation, where there is decay, where there is entropy, where there are such factors. And because of this, it would be paradoxical that Buddha, who is a great sage, wants to live in a physical body, in the physical world, in an universe characterized by imperfection, but he should apply somehow a miraculous knowledge that in the middle of an imperfect universe, imperfect through the very laws of which constituted, Buddha should be the one perfect thing, because I can't even call it a body or a person anymore. Buddha would be the one perfect thing in a universe which otherwise is inherently imperfect from so many standpoints. No. Then, of course, Buddha, who lives ecologically, harmoniously, in resonance with nature, then Buddha says, even I shall die one day. Because on the face of this earth, every creature is born and dies. If I, Buddha, apply my perfect knowledge so as not to die anymore, that's simply like a thorn in the eye. It's a sort of a thing which stands out of the whole thing, paradoxically and absurdly, because in this universe things are attuned to a certain rhythm. There are laws of evolution and of becoming. 
and Buddha or Krishna or Ramakrishna or Rumi or Saint Teresa of Avila, they don't want to be out of these laws of evolution. They want to be ecologically embedded into them while at the same time having this higher knowledge. This higher knowledge, some people say, if I would have this higher knowledge, I would apply it to the perfection of it. That's what you think now. But when you will reach it, you might see that things stand, that there is a wisdom which you didn't see, exactly like when you reach the top of a mountain, and beyond that top of the mountain, there is another chain of mountains, and there is another wisdom which you could not see while you are climbing the mountain, because it was hidden by the mountain which you are climbing. And thus, nevertheless, the statement is strong and beautiful. It says, even if you were the most sinful of all sinners, what does it mean? People hate the word sin. This is a translation made by old-fashioned yogis. It's not politically correct to call somebody a sinner. But in Hinduism and in the classical yoga, especially a Shivananda or a Maharishi Mahesh yogi, those who made such translations, they were using old-fashioned language. Today, you have to be more soothsaying and to use a more politically correct language. And that's why you would say, even if you are the person with the heaviest karma in the world. Like, who is the most sinful of all sinners? Milarepa. Milarepa killed minimum 35 people before he started doing yoga and meditation. Then a, a person like Milarepa says, how many people do I know around me who killed 35 people? I am the most sinful of all sinners, for God's sake. No, it's, some people say, no, 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 there is somebody who killed 70 or 100. That's purely subjective and emotional. A person who blames themselves doesn't think rationally and says, Yuppie, I'm not the most sinner of all sinners because I found out that there is one who is more wretched than I am. Usually a repentant sinner puts himself down big time and says, yeah, I don't care. There might be others, but definitely I feel like I am the worst of all sinners. Even Paul, the apostle of Christ, because he persecuted Christians before his conversion to Christianity, and maybe killed some, we don't know exactly, Paul, after when he speaks in one of the letters, he says, because Christ Jesus came to earth for the sake of all sinners, out of which the least of them, the last of them, the most wretched and dirty of them, am I. Paul doesn't say, oh, I have been cleansed by Jesus and now I am saved and I am an apostle and let me give you the good tidings. Till the end of his life, Paul says, there are sinners in this world and the last of them, the, the worst of them is I. He points to, he doesn't brag that now I am the apostle of Jesus Christ. He says, that's a grace which is way too big for me. I don't deserve it. I am the most wretched of all the sinners in this world. And somehow by a mercy which seems to be totally undeserved, God has asked me to give the message. And I'm giving the message, but I'm never forgetting what a terrible person I was and what I did and so on. That's, of course, to cultivate humbleness. 
one of the things which modern people don't have is humbleness. Everybody is arrogant, full of vanity and pride. And the vanity and pride is worse than murder on the scale of the sins. The devil is fallen in the Judeo-Christian Islamic mysticism because of pride. Not because of murder, not because of theft, not because of fornication. The devil is fallen because something which is much worse than murder and fornication and theft. Because of pride. And therefore, this is something which serves to quell the pride of the human beings. That, hey, I'm a sinner. It's not a negative thing. People say, yeah, you put yourself down. And then it's a negative self-suggestion. It doesn't work that way. Paul was powerful and inspired and beneficial and brilliant and active and very divine. Although, he says, I am the most wretched of the sinners in this world. Because he did it like an act of humbleness, not as an act of self-destruction. And thus, but that is something which you have to understand by spiritual practice. The distinction is very difficult to see for outsiders who are not doing a spiritual practice. So, the powerful statement is amazing. Krishna says, as Buddha did, later, Krishna is before Buddha, historically speaking, even if you were the most sinful of all sinners, like if you had a terrible karma which you think, I am hopeless, I have no hope ever, or for a long, long time, you would cross over all the sin, over all the evil, by the raft of knowledge alone. Like what he says, I hope you are getting it loud and clear. Krishna says, knowledge, and I am saying it again and again, not book knowledge, not scientific knowledge, existential spiritual knowledge which comes from realization and from self-realization. And Krishna says, through this knowledge, exactly as with a raft you can cross over an ocean, you can go over all the negative karma. In case you didn't get it, let's say it once more, even more simple. Krishna says, knowledge destroys the karma. Knowledge burns the karma. Those of you who reached in the third and several further levels of Agama Yoga practice, you know that the yogis have materialized this in actual yoga exercises. There are yoga exercises which work on a certain chakra for developing the knowledge and those yoga techniques are famous precisely for this, that they destroy the karma. So the yogis have even made it technologically down to earth. Like not only statements and philosophy. In Krishna is not teaching yoga techniques at this point. And that's why he announces the idea, he sets it forth as a philosophical principle which I hope you will remember as long as you live. With a raft of knowledge, you can cross over the ocean of an astounding amount of sins or negative karma. Knowledge is the thing 
which destroys negative karma. People would say, what about the grace of God? That also, even more than knowledge. But you have no control over the grace of God. Knowledge, you can work for knowledge. For the grace of God, you can pray. And you can say, God, forgive me. I killed 35 people. God, or all the Buddhas of the past, present, and future, or whatever your spiritual background is, every whatever is the supreme spirituality for you, help me, forgive me. Is it possible? Yes, it is. It does happen. It's actually recommended that you do that as well. And it does happen often because there is grace. There is compassion which pours over you. But that is not a guarantee. That takes a sort of a surrender and let it happen when it will happen and how it will happen. Krishna describes a yoga technique and he says, he doesn't say you are going to reach enlightenment, but he says with knowledge you can destroy sins. You can destroy negative karma, bad karma. That is why, my dear ones, never stay away from knowledge. One of the signs of decadence is that people are not longing for knowledge. Albert Einstein said the religion and the the scientific research have the same root. The desire of people to attain knowledge. Somebody wants to attain knowledge about reincarnation. Is there reincarnation or not? What have I been in my previous life if there is reincarnation? And some people try to make a chronovision, parapsychological radionic machine. Some people try to do, I don't know what, psychological hypnotherapy things. And some people try to do meditation to go into their third eye and see memories from previous lives. Everybody, either you are a scientist or a meditator, you are curious, you are enthusiastic, and you need some answers. Only that the method which you choose to use is different because some people believe in instruments, devices, measurements, and some people believe in themselves. (coughs) The scientist the materialistic scientist, not the enlightened scientist like Albert Einstein, who had a foot in both worlds, but the skeptical materialistic scientist never believes in himself. He doesn't realize that his brain contains in itself the answer to his question. And he believes in voltmeters and ampere meters and other devices. That's because he projects his confidence out of himself. He believes in machineries, instead of believing in himself. The meditator says the machineries suck. I have the answers in myself. Therefore, these are just two ways of doing the same thing. And what the tragedy is, is that people lose their curiosity, their scientific research. You find people doing scientific research when they are 20 years old, but today less and less. How many people do you think today are going in research in physics, in chemistry? We live in a much more luxurious world 
than a hundred years ago. A hundred years ago, Miss Curie with her husband, they were spending 30 years in a barn which had no heating in the winter as well to distillate Pechblenda into radium and to discover radioactivity and a new chemical element in the periodic table of elements. Very uncomfortable. They burned themselves. Pierre Joliot-Curie died of cancer during this research because he irradiated himself too much and he died not realizing that radioactivity would have such toxic effects on the human body. So people were dying to do scientific research. Today, people drop out of the school before they finish high school. They don't want to learn. They don't. When the United States of America wants to hire researchers for computer programming or from NASA, they take them from Mexico, from China, from India, from Eastern Europe until a couple of years ago, until they screwed that part of the world as well. From all sorts of, from all parts of the world where people were still eager for scientific things, for mathematics, physics, chemistry. Remember that if you do not have a genuine desire to know the truth, you actually are not longing for knowledge. And that's one of the signs of ankylosing of the brain. When your body ankyloses in its joints, you are not flexible anymore. You cannot do padahastasana, you cannot do cobra, because your body has become stiff. But it's not only the body which becomes stiff. Mens sana incorpore sano. The healthy mind is in a healthy body. If your body becomes stiff, your mind becomes stiff. Therefore, one of the biggest dangers is not that your body slowly decays. The mind decays. And that's why people become 50 years old. They lost the juice. They lost their ojas. That's why even young people at 20, they don't do scientific research. Because you can be sure that Pierre Joliot-Curie was not masturbating when he was 20 years old. Because masturbation was considered smut and the blasphemy in those historical times. And then he had ojas to be interested in the structure of the atom. Today, you masturbate since you are 14 and discharge that energy. And then who the heck wants to be a scientific researcher? No more, because there is no ojas. There is no sparkling pressure in your system. You are flat. You have gone flat. And thus, the tragedy is that people don't want to find God. The monasteries are empty. The Catholic Church sells monastery after monastery and church after church because nobody wants to be a monk and a nun anymore. The infrastructure was colossal from the medieval times. It's useless because only 10% of the people who were there are now. The population of the world has increased 10 times over, but the spiritual practitioners have decreased 100 times over. There are no more people who want to live in monasteries. There were 20,000 monks in Mount Athos in Greece. Today there are probably 2,000. And they expect that soon the elders will die and there will be 200. And those 200 will be administrators who will look at the icons to make sure when they have to be repainted and protected from rain. Not people of prayer. 
Not people who do 24 hours of prayer non-stop. People don't want to do scientific research and people don't want to do spirituality because of materialism, skepticism, cynicism, important psychological traumas, decay of the brain and of the body because of decaying health conditions like too much antibiotica, too much vaccination and other things which make the human being one-fourth of the children are born autistic already. They are damaged goods from the beginning already. And the list could continue enormously. That's why maybe you don't realize, but knowledge today is decadent. People want to take it. Yeah, you want to see a quick video clip. You want to take it from YouTube. You want, like, nobody wants to study to understand. I'm, of course, I exaggerate. There are still a few people who do, but so much less than before. Where are people like Albert Einstein and Niels Bohr and Werner Heisenberg and Schrödinger and Dirac and all the others, even later, the ones which came, Talbot and so many others. The list is so big. Where are they? It seems they don't make it anymore. Today we are just promenading a mutilated doll like that guy called Hawkins. That's the flower of the human science. Some paraplegic in a wheelchair who drools and who is supposed to be the miracle man. Where are the scientists? Where are the Charles Darwins? Where are it looks like people say, but Swami, it looks like we discovered everything already. And it's kind it's not true at all. We, we sleep on a volcano ready to erupt. We live in a world of mystery. There are so many unknown and mysterious things in everything. In geography, in biology, in medicine, in psychology, in, in the paranormal, in the space research, in physics, in chemistry. There are so many things that we still don't know. But what people are lacking is the thirst for knowledge. And you can see that sometimes older people, when they are 50, 55, 60, or why not 80, they become more dull. Physiologists would say it's because your brain dies. You lose a lot of brain cells, either because you go into Alzheimer or because you drink too much or God knows why, or you sniff glue. And therefore, you don't have brain capacity for it. It doesn't matter what the reason is. The fact is that people's thirst for knowledge disappears. As you get older, very few people are young when they are old biologically. Very few people when they are 70 years old, they are ready to start a new adventure, to go and take a university degree, to learn something new, to start a new life. People always say, I'm too old, I'm tired. That's a symptomatic thing. You have to see it as a symptomatic thing because it's not black and white. It happens gradually along life. And if you will remember, those of you who attended with me the, the workshop on the art of dying, when I quoted for you the research of Dr. Raymond Moody, that angel, that being of light which comes to you short time after you pass away, 
when you are looking together at the story of your life, like you are watching a video or movie, it's pointing at two things. And one of those two things, which are the only worthy things that apparently you can do in a lifetime, at least on this planet. And one of those is enriching your spirit, acquiring knowledge. Acquiring knowledge is as great as selfless love. Do not understand by any means that I am trying to put down selfless love. That's the other wing of the bird. But one which is overlooked very often is this. You have to be thirsty for knowledge, curious like a child, wanting to know, realizing that there is mystery, realizing that there is unfulfilled knowledge, and the whole life is a quest. And when you die, this quest does not end, because the quest is infinite, because you are trying to know the infinite, and the infinite can be known only in an infinite time. And therefore, knowledge is eternal, because knowledge is God, just like love is God. But love is God has been said. Knowledge is God has been said in Jnana Yoga. But it's a less popular thing because of the following. People think that knowledge means to read books and just to know facts, which is not what I'm talking about. Although, of course, you can read from a book something about something and you can ask somebody and then you can start practicing and doing it yourself and thus get some real knowledge, some experiential knowledge, some existential knowledge. I, I don't want to say that knowledge from the books is worth zero because it is worth something. It's the beginning of knowledge, but it's not sufficient. It's not enough. And also, this knowledge is God is put down because many people understand, oh, if I have to acquire knowledge, then I have to be smart. And many people live with a painful self-suggestion that they are stupid, that they are unworthy. And then people who feel, oh, I'm not intelligent. Look at Swami. Swami has a super IQ of some sort, and he understands and he can talk and he is obviously very knowledgeable. But me, I didn't even finish high school and I smoked lots of dope when I was young and I think I'm a bit dumb. That is a terrible way to think about yourself. And such people say, if I'm not so smart, I think at least I have a great heart I can love. Like people find compensation from knowledge into love, knowing intuitively that those who don't know can love and those who love don't necessarily need to know. That is not true. It's a misunderstanding because the knowledge is something which is deeper than the scholastic knowledge and the amount of scriptural or book knowledge that you have. The knowledge is something deeper, experiential, existential. So, this is a very important statement. The value of knowledge. And Krishna insists. He really wants to make you understand what he's saying. And he says, As a blazing fire turns fuel to ashes, O Arjuna, so does the fire of knowledge turns all actions into ashes. 
This is why in yoga, this is called to burn karma. The simile used is coming from Krishna. Krishna says, all the actions can be turned into, into ashes. What do you mean to turn actions into ashes? Like, I am uh, making a lecture and I want to turn this into ashes. That's a misunderstanding. You have to remember that the word action in Sanskrit is karma and it has a double entendre. Karma means the action, but it also means the resultant of that action, the karmic consequence, the bouncing back, the boomerang effect, the reaction which the human being has always to undergo sooner or later for their actions. Either good or bad, pleasant or unpleasant, it doesn't matter. And that's why actually what Krishna says here, let's read it again. As the blazing fire reduces fuel to ashes, O Arjuna, so does the fire of knowledge reduce all karma to ashes. Action, in Sanskrit it's karma. So when I read it in Sanskrit, suddenly you understand. Because it's not about the action. It's about the other face of the coin. It's the other side of the coin that is referred. The reactions to the action. We are not interested to burn the action. We are interested to do the action in a spiritual way and to have no consequences for that action. That's what Krishna talks about. So hear it again. It's like this is black on white and therefore it's like it cannot be expressed more clearly. As a blazing fire turns fuel to ashes, so does the fire of knowledge turn all actions, all karma to ashes. Those of you who have attended this discourse tonight or who will listen to it digitally at whatever time, you do not have the right to ask me again, how am I going to burn my karma? I gave you the answer from Krishna. It is knowledge. It is the fire of knowledge which burns the karma to ashes. Which is a very technical, formidable, scary yoga perspective. Until Krishna would reveal such thing, everybody believes that karma is inevitable and you have to deal with it. But Krishna is the first one who first uh, fights a roundabout. He skips it. He circumvenes it. He tricks it. He says there is a trick. There is karma and you can burn karma to ashes. That's karma yoga. That's the function of yoga and working on the chakras and developing knowledge. Burn, you burn the karma. Any one of you, you want to get rid of your karma, you don't have to wait until it wears out by itself. That's the passive method. There does exist a proactive method. The proactive method is do yoga, especially the yoga which develops the power of your knowledge. And the fire of knowledge will burn all the karma to ashes. It's as simple as that. The answer, like it couldn't have been said more clear than that. That's why yoga has this frightening thing. It's possible to deal with karma 
in a technical way because after all karma is just an energy. Everything in this universe is an energy. Even karma. If it's an energy, then you can deal with it. Every energy can be manipulated, accumulated, amplified, compensated, denied, consumed. There are a lot of things which we can do with energy, right? Therefore, karma just the same. Only that it's a very discreet, difficult to fathom energy. And for most people, it is off their reach. Truly, there is in this, I'm up to 38 because I would like to finish this ode to knowledge. Truly, there is in this world nothing so purifying as knowledge. He who is perfected in yoga of himself in time finds this within himself. Which means Krishna says, even if I wouldn't teach you, you would realize this through practice. Your own knowledge will give you this knowledge. I know it and I'm just passing it to you like this. But it is something which some people discovered to start with without every, anybody telling them. Therefore, this is inherent. It is already pre-existing in the universe. It's not something invented or brought forth by somebody. So he says, He who is perfected in yoga finds it in the self, in time. But Krishna says, I'm giving you a shortcut. I'm telling it to you already. Even if it would be forgotten, some people would rediscover it at some time. And he says, Verily, there is no purifier in this world like knowledge. So again, some people will say, what about love? Love is the other side of the coin. Knowledge and love go hand in hand. Here, Krishna does not describe the path of love. He describes the path of knowledge. So, he says, there is nothing in this world so purifying as knowledge. This is an arguable statement. Like people who don't believe in knowledge but believe in love, which is of course stupid because knowledge and love are hand in hand, but let's say for the limited human mind it can be seen like that, would argue and we say there is nothing so purifying in this world as love because love is God. I am ready to concede that this mountain has two faces and it can be seen differently from the north face and from the south face. Here, Krishna is looking at the north face and he says, there is nothing so purifying in this world as knowledge. That is why I always recommend to you, develop knowledge. Develop knowledge. Find out where ignorance is. In Tibetan Buddhism, for example, ignorance, stupidity as it is translated, but it's not stupidity, it's ignorance, is very much related to the fifth element, to Akasha Tattva. So the impairing of the fifth element and of the corresponding chakra is automatically creating an impairment into the function of knowledge. Therefore, if you want to develop knowledge, you as yogis especially, you know what to do technically. You have it at your fingertips. You are being taught the full ABC of spirituality, the cream of the cream. 
the best, the knowledge, authentically and fully. You cannot say, if you study this yoga, that you do not understand how, which chakra and what yoga technique does increase your knowledge. It's everybody who has done three months of yoga knows where that goes. So, he says, as the fire burns, so does knowledge burns. There is nothing so purifying as knowledge. Think about why did Krishna use the word purifying? Knowledge purifies. It burns and it purifies. When we say purity, you think immediately about the fifth chakra, which corresponds to the fifth element. And thus, you can see that things are fitting. It's not a coincidence that he uses the word purifying. Knowledge is pure. Okay, it's purifying your karma. But he doesn't say that. He says there is nothing in the world which purifies your karma. He simply says there is nothing so purifying. That's very significant. And here he continues in 39. He gains knowledge who is possessed of faith, is active of purpose, and has subdued the senses. Three conditions. He says... He gains knowledge. How do you gain knowledge? Who is possessed of faith. Many people diminish the role of faith. Even in yoga, they say we have a method which is rational, scientific. I don't really need to believe. And there are people who have big problems with their own faith. They have crises of faith. And yet Krishna says... Part of the knowledge, the knowledge comes with faith. Like somebody says, I know in my heart that Jesus was God treading on the surface of this earth. And some people say, how do you know? It's knowledge. And at the same time, this knowledge, it is faith. Some people say, oh, you just believe. And some people say, yeah, to you the word which you use is believe. To me, I know. How the heck do you know? Did you verify it in a laboratory? No, this cannot be verified in any scientific laboratory. There is no Socratic logical process which can demonstrate who Jesus was. As much as you try. It's something which you know... And knowledge is related to faith because there is a part of your knowledge which is not justifiable by reason. And that part is like, I intuitively know it. That's faith. So, he gains knowledge who is possessed of faith. If you kill your faith, you will never reach 100% knowledge. One leg is gone. You have a tripod. And one of the legs of it is gone. No faith. Okay, only 66% has remained out of that knowledge. You've lost 33%, one third already. Who is active of purpose. Active of purpose. Or as Shivananda puts it, who is devoted to it. 
like people who move their asses not people who don't do anything you find people who say I have a faith and so what are you doing about it oh I'm waiting for the doomsday to come you are lost you've lost another leg of your knowledge you do not attain knowledge by waiting passivity in spirituality is not welcome you have to be active of purpose you have to be devoted to what you believe otherwise said if you just profess that you have a faith and you don't act on it I think everybody in this world should meditate but I forgot to then you are not active on it you are not doing it you are not active of purpose you are not devoted to it it's lip service that's the second leg of it to gain knowledge and who has subdued his senses like Socrates says I see people on the street and every man is accompanied by a pig and instead of the man riding on the back of the pig it is most often the pig riding on the riding on the back of the man which means what 99% of our fellow humans are subdued to their senses and therefore to their pig to their physical body with hunger with thirst with fear with pain with sex with whatever it is you can lead any of them wherever because they depend on it but everybody knows that you cannot manipulate with Milarepa in the same way you cannot manipulate with Ramakrishna in the same way and therefore these are don't take it at a radical level it's at a human level it's not impossible perfect unattainable it's within reach Krishna is not preaching something utopian and beyond limits these are people look at the saints at the great enlightened beings and you are going to see people who have subdued their senses at least within reason we cannot speak about something which is utopian and inexistent so Krishna says to gain knowledge he gains knowledge he who is possessed of faith is active of purpose and has subdued the senses these are the three conditions then you gain knowledge the real knowledge and he says of course having gained knowledge swiftly he comes to the supreme peace that's another tantalizing thing come to me and I shall give you peace some people don't want bliss some people want peace it's the same thing we are trying to lure you by describing to you how wonderful the matrix is but again remember that neither peace not nor bliss can properly describe what this supreme reality is and that's why these are just words which simply are a sell a sales pitch they are simply telling you oh you do this you reach peace and some people say yeah yeah me me I am the one who goes for peace I'll have a piece of that please therefore 
take it with a pinch of salt. And he continues, even showing the opposite. But the man who is without knowledge, without faith, and of a doubting nature, doubting Thomas, perishes. It's not a small word. It's a very violent word. The man who is without knowledge, without faith, and of a doubting nature perishes. Swami Shivananda translates like this. The ignorant, without knowledge, the faithless, the doubting self proceeds to destruction. Another tough word. There's nothing to joke about these things. No knowledge. No faith. Doubt, according to Krishna, is the sure recipe for disaster. For perishing. Not suffering. Perishing. Disappearing. Destruction. That's not a small thing to say. And he even says further, for the doubting mind, there is neither this world nor another, nor any happiness. You want to hear that again? For the doubting mind, how many of you are doubting minds? There is neither this world nor the other one, nor happiness. If you are doubting minds, do your utmost to get out of this condition. There is no room for doubt in eternal life. There is no room for doubt in spirituality. If you accept it in you, you are going towards perishing. The Western culture is criminal from this standpoint. The basis of the modern rationalism has become not doubting Thomas, because doubting Thomas somehow managed to save himself through the grace of Jesus, but the famous Descartes, René Descartes, and the Cartesian reason and doubt. And people say, but we have to doubt. The mantra of René Descartes, which is one of the most decadent and poisonous mantras that you can imagine. Dubito ergo cogito. I doubt, therefore I think. Which means Jesus doesn't think. Because Jesus never seems to doubt. Shankaracharya never seems to doubt. He says, I am consciousness and bliss without end. I am Shiva, I am Shiva. Maybe, who knows. He never says that. Therefore, this thing which is put by an intellectual, a non-realized human being, who is not spiritual and not enlightened, is a poison for the whole Western culture since 300 years. I doubt that. The only sign that you think is that you doubt. But actually Krishna says you doubt... And you are going to perish. Perish. Destruction. You don't get this world. You don't get the next world. And you don't get happiness. Therefore, what's the big deal about doubting? Ah, 
a, a healthy way of asking questions. But that's not doubting. You see, there's a bad translation. Because maybe dubito in Latin means I'm asking myself questions because I want to know. Fantastic. Good. Great. Ask yourself as many questions. Who am I? Where do I come from? Where am I going to? What's my meaning? Why am I here on earth? What's the nature of the cosmic consciousness? Who sent me to live on this earth? Is there a creator of the universe? These are not doubts. These are healthy, amazingly good questions. But doubt is that somebody reveals to you that there could be an experiment which shows you this, and you say, nah, I don't think so. That's where the doubt begins. The doubt, if you want to be an inquiring mind, not a doubtful mind, an inquiring mind, ask questions, be open to receive the answers. That's taking you to immortality. But doubt is a pathological thing. Even when somebody shows you something, even though there is no explanation, then you say, I doubt. Why? What reason do you have to doubt? Like, you can make research. You see David Copperfield going through the Great Wall of China. And you say, is David Copperfield doing magic with some low entities and demons which really can produce materialization of his body? And is this inexplicable feat an act of magic of a stupendous nature? Or is it all just a technical trick? And then you go on YouTube and you Google for David Copperfield exposed going through the Great Wall of China. And you find two Spanish engineers, Munoz and Puertolas, who show exactly how the trick is done. That doesn't mean that you have been doubting. You shouldn't have doubted that David Copperfield can cross through the Great Wall of China. That's stupidity, that's credulity, and that gives rise to fanaticism. You are free to ask the relevant questions. Is there any other way in which this could be explained? Is there somebody who knows more about this? But in the moment when you have exhausted all those questions, in that moment you can say, well, there is something. Of course, not without asking the good questions. Therefore, here some people say that doubting means not doubting. If you stop doubting, you should become a naive, credulous person. That's not what Krishna means. Krishna says, do not doubt when things are happening. Jesus makes Peter walk on water on the Sea of Galilee, and Peter walks for three meters, and then suddenly he flops into the water. And Jesus pulls him out of the water, still walking on the water himself. And he says, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Like Jesus gave him a brilliant example. In the beginning, hypnotically, he put in himself a faith. And after a few seconds, he withdrew it a little bit to see if the man can maintain it by himself. And as soon as Jesus withdrew his hypnotic support, P 
Peter's mind said, how the heck comes that I'm walking on water? This is not possible. Poof. Then he fell into the water. That doubt is the devil. Because Peter could as well have said, Jesus made me walk on water. I have conquered a new dimension of the human existence. I am walking on water because Jesus gave this to me. And I already stepped three meters on water. That's it. But he had to ask the stupid question. Will it go on forever? How long will it hold? What if this is some trick? And he lost it. There is therefore a healthy inquireness, inquiring nature, inquisitiveness of the mind, which I recommend to all of you, and which leads to knowledge. And then there is doubt, which is a pathological thing of the mind, and which Milarepa and Rumi and Jesus and the likes of them, Ramakrishna and Teresa of Avila, they did not have. These people got beyond doubt. That's where you have to go. As long as you will not resolve your doubt, it's perishing. It's destruction. Let's read it again. But the man who is without knowledge, without faith and of a doubting nature, perishes. That, of course, is a great mystery. What does it mean to perish in a universe where you are created by an immortal soul? An immortal soul cannot perish. So why does Krishna use such a tough word, destruction? For the doubting mind, there is neither this world, nor another, nor any happiness. You want happiness? Stop doubting. You want this world, as I said last time, like you have to have this world, which means success in this world in whatever direction, no doubt. Napoleon himself said, I am afraid only of the man of one book. Because that man has no doubts, the fanatic. If you have doubts, you are weak. It is as simple as that. Jesus was not weak. Because he had no doubts. He went straight forward into it, knowing perfectly who he was and what he had to do. But that's a sign of grace. That's a great sign of grace. And that grace, you, can, you have to achieve it through work and to call it through prayer. And the last two, I just want to finish, but these are concluding remarks. Krishna says, He who has renounced action by virtue of yoga... O Arjuna, whose doubts are rent asunder by knowledge, who is possessed of the self, him the actions do not bind. This is the whole philosophy of Karma Yoga, resumed in one verse. He who has renounced actions by yoga. Like now I'm not going to do this, I'm going to do yoga, Karma Yoga. I'm not going to build a hospital by myself. I'm going to do karma yoga and build a naturist hospital. So he who has renounced the action by yoga, whose doubts are rendered under by knowledge, that is, seems difficult but not impossible, and who is self-possessed, who is 
centered in the self, actions do not bind him, O Arjuna. That means there is no more karma. This is how you do karma yoga. This is how you reach perfection in action. Having, renouncing action and doing it as karma yoga, having no doubts and possessed of the self, being of the self, knowing I am the Supreme Self, I am Shiva, I am the Cosmic Consciousness, I am Brahman, I am that. Therefore, this is the whole philosophy which Krishna is striving to explain to Arjuna, because that's the whole point. He says, if you reach that, then actions leave no consequences. And finally, he gives a direct instruction to Arjuna, given the circumstances, and therefore says, Therefore, having cut asunder with a sword of knowledge this doubt of yours, born of ignorance and rooted in the heart, resort to yoga. Stand up, O Arjuna. He basically is trying to get him back to himself. And he says, cutting asunder with a sword of knowledge. He compares knowledge with a sword. So did Ramakrishna. When Kali appeared in front of him, he cut Kali into two with a sword of his mind. That's the sword of knowledge. It's discrimination. To discriminate the black from the white. To discriminate. That's what Jesus says. Do not think that I came to bring peace in the world because I did not come to bring peace but a sword. That's a very metaphoric statement. Discrimination. Now those people are good. Those people are not doing the right thing. It's as simple as that. And he says, Kevin cut asunder with a sword of knowledge, this doubt of yours born of ignorance, because Arjuna is doubting seriously. Oh my God, am I really going to do this? I can't do this. And though, born of ignorance, he says, you are ignorant. I, Krishna, can see you are sitting there and looking in your own belly button and crying like a fool and rooted in your heart like here, it doesn't mean the heart like Hridaya. It means the heart rooted in your heart like it's an emotional thing. It's in your heart, it's in your soul, it's in your psyche. So this is rooted in your heart and cutting it, take refuge in yoga, resort to yoga, like be a karma yogi for God's sake. Do sacrifice, do spiritual action as I, Krishna, taught you for four chapters already. And... Arise, O Arjuna. Stand up, O Arjuna. That's what he wants him. Arjuna has turned into a jellyfish due to fear, confusion, misunderstanding, attachment, and all this ignorance in his heart. And Krishna is giving him a crash course in divine knowledge. and says, that's the knowledge, what I'm telling to you now. This is how people reach immortality. This is what leads you to realization and to peace. And therefore you also cut the doubt with your knowledge and take refuge in yoga. I cannot conclude better the series of discourses of satsangs this year than telling you the same thing. Cut your doubt by knowledge 
take refuge in yoga and stand up spiritually. That's all you need to do. Stand up and be what you are supposed to be. Be what and who you really are. You can do amazing things and it's all in there. It's just the doubt and the ignorance which produces all this illusion, all this drama, all this soap opera in which people torture themselves. With this we conclude our series. Remain in meditation, if you will so, for a couple of minutes to settle down. Namaste to all of you. And I will see some of you, many of you, hopefully, in the satsangs for 2012, which will start together with the first series of teaching of our new season. With this, we have finished for tonight.